to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. Today, I'm going to share a sermon that I gave a little over two years ago entitled Savage Death. I've only given this sermon one time uh, for a few reasons, but mainly it's just a difficult sermon to give, uh, to remember all of the information and uh, deliver it the way that I wanted to. I feel like I'd have to go back and almost digest all of the material again. I haven't had an opportunity to do that. So I'm sharing a recorded version of an actual sermon that I gave at church. It's a rather lengthy recording, but I hope it's beneficial and dispels some of the false notions people have about the death of Christ. I'll go ahead and give you a forewarning. I butchered the pronunciation of some of the medical terms, especially in reference to Dr. Zugby's credentials. Uh, my brother teased me about that when I gave it, but uh, that's not my background. However, I hope that despite the mistakes, it is a beneficial sermon and helps put things in perspective of why we worship God. I want to share one verse with you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. The Bible says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Whenever I study this scene of Jesus' crucifixion, this verse comes to mind, stands out in my mind, Really, the, the term there, the light affliction, our light affliction, really, by comparison, it is extremely light, and seeing Christ on the cross is a very humbling experience that reminds us that no matter what he has asked for, no matter what comes upon us in life, we have great blessing in Christ, and we can overcome the circumstances that we face ourselves, including this current moment of crisis. So without further delay, here's the sermon, and God bless. Appreciate those songs that were led. That last one, I have a difficult time singing that last song. It's a beautiful, beautiful song with words and music. In December of last year, Brother James Wilson approached me, and he asked me to give a sermon on the physical suffering of Jesus leading up to his death and culminating in the cross at Calvary. And I agreed to do that, and he's. He made a statement somewhere along the lines of this. He said, I'm not sure most people understand all that Jesus suffered and fully appreciate it. He'd been doing some reading and some studying. And uh, when he asked me to do that, I have to admit that I probably fell in that category. Um, I've studied the crucifixion before. I have taught on the crucifixion here some years ago. Uh, but there's some things that I have learned recently that I did not know. There were some things that I thought I knew that I did not know that were uh, simply wrong, I was mistaken about, 
And so as we go through the study this morning, I hope that we can re-examine some very important scenes within the Bible. There are several reasons that I believe there are misunderstandings about the crucifixion of Christ and about his death. Uh, the first one is ignorance. Um, sometimes we haven't read, sometimes we haven't studied, sometimes we haven't learned what there is to know about the process of crucifixion, about the process of scourging, about many of the things that Jesus suffered leading up to the death on the cross. And so simply for lack of ignorance, we don't appreciate everything that was. I think one of the main reasons that we don't appreciate it, maybe as we should, is because of Hollywood. Now, Hollywood came out with the movie The Passion of Christ, directed by Mel Gibson some years ago. And when this movie was produced, it was lauded as being very historically accurate. It was uh, supposed to very uh, accurately and graphically depict the suffering that Christ went through. And I will say that it, it came through on the graphic side of things, but it was not accurate. There were uh, at least eight to ten discrepancies in this movie, quite large discrepancies. And uh, they give a false impression of what happened. They say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but that all depends on who's painting the picture and who's writing the words. And the picture that Gibson painted did not match up with the words that God wrote uh, depicting the death of his son. And so I think there's some misconfusions. We're going to talk about some of that this morning. Another reason for misunderstandings is because of a doctor by the name of Pierre Barbet. He wrote a book in 1950 entitled A Doctor at Calvary. He was a French physician and a French doctor, and he theorized on a lot of the things that would take place in the process of crucifixion and the process of scourging and other things that Jesus suffered. And he was simply wrong about several things, uh, several positions he took. However, that being said, his work has had a profound impact. Whether you know it or not, some of what you maybe think you know about the crucifixion was affected by Pierre Barbet. There were things that I learned that I have taught myself, that I have heard other preachers teach, that I assumed, I've, I've heard them all my life, I assumed this is how it was, this is what it included, and that was not the case. And the, we, one of the things that we can be thankful for is uh, Dr. Frederick Zugby. Dr. Frederick Zugby wrote this book, uh, The Crucifixion of Jesus. And Dr. Frederick Zugby uh, did about 30 years of research as well as experimentation on the death of Christ. And I mentioned that to Brother Joe the other day. He said, did he perform experiments or what? Did he practice crucifixion? And in fact, he did. Uh, he did not use nails in either the hands or the feet, but he had many volunteers. He had over 100 males who volunteered to uh, be strapped to a cross, and they did examination of the effects of the cross and what would have been the causes of death. Uh, he did tremendous research. He is highly regarded in the field. I'll, I'll read you his credentials. He was an American expert in forensic medicine. He was the chief medical examiner of Rockland County in New York from 1969 till 2002. This means that he had an extensive background on examining dead people and the cause of death, discovering what the causes of death were. Zugby held a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science degree in anatomy and electron microscopy. He had a Ph.D. in anatomy and hysteric histochemistry and a medical degree as well. He was a diplomat of the American Board of Pathology and Anatomic Pathology and Forensic Pathology and a diplomat of the American Board of Family Practice. Zugby was an adjunct associate professor of pathology at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and a fellow of the College of American Pathologists. He was formerly the director of cardiovascular research 
with the Veterans Hospital in Pittsburgh and was a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, a fellow in the Council of uh, Arteriosclerosis of the American Heart Association and a fellow of the New York Cardiological Society. And what all that means is this man was the top of his fields, highly recognized the world over in the fields of cardiology, pathology, and forensic science. And he used his background and his knowledge and his education that he gained through studies at the university level and teaching at the university level to do research and to perform um, experimentation regarding crucifixion and all the suffering that Christ went through. What he did and the advantage in his work is that he built upon what Pierre Barbet had written. Not everything Pierre Barbet had written was wrong, but a number of things he wrote were just theoretical in nature. He did not test them out. He had no way of knowing if this was indeed the case or not. So Zugby came along and he built upon Pierre's work. He actually performed the experimentation. He did the proper research that uh, Barbet had only theorized about. And he also had a high view of scripture and allowed scripture to speak for itself in depicting how Jesus died on the cross. And so this morning as we study along, we are going to be talking about the physical aspects of what Christ suffered. We are going to be relying some on the research. I will be presenting some of the research information from Dr. Zugby, but also examining some of the passages in Scripture that we're familiar with to understand better what was being depicted by the Bible writers. Before we go any further, though, we have an awesome privilege to approach our Heavenly Father in a word of prayer. We have much to be thankful for, much to reflect on, and we ask that you would follow along with our brother as he directs our thoughts. My God and your God coming to earth to die for us. That's an incredible thought. Brother Jamie taught on Wednesday night about John chapter 1, the first 18 verses, particularly verse 14, where Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us. A, a crazy thought, difficult to comprehend how Almighty God could change his nature and take on human flesh, come down to earth not only to live as a man, but also to die as a man. One of the more underappreciated scenes I believe that you see in the Bible is the night when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Because there we have the conflict of deity and humanity uh, struggling with each other, if you will. God the Son uh, struggling with the concept of his death that was awaiting him. A very difficult concept indeed. One writer put it this way, he said, Jesus Christ, 200% God and man. I think that's well stated. He was 100% God, and he was also 100% man. A lot of times when we talk about the suffering and death of Christ, I think we have a tendency to negate the effect that it had upon Jesus the man because he was also Jesus God. Uh, Jesus' deity did not in any way, shape, or form take away from his humanity and his ability to suffer as a man. There are uh, six stages of suffering that Jesus went through. We have first the agony in the garden. The second, the beating that he received at the hand of the Jews at his mock trial. Third, the scourging that took place by trained professional Roman soldiers. Fourth, the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. Fifth, the carrying of the cross up to Calvary. 
And then six, the process of crucifixion itself. As gruesome as all of the previous five were, maybe number four in particular, the crucifixion was itself horrendous. And had he only gone through stage six, that in itself would have been a massive portrait of God's love. But there was much that took place leading up to the scene of the cross. We want to examine each of those six scenes this morning. But we also want to ask the question in closing, what was the cause of Jesus' death? How do we know how Jesus died? We want to try to answer that question if we can this morning. Maybe the uh, answer that you have right now is a different answer than what we will arrive at in the end. But I ask you to have an open mind this morning and to consider the evidence as it's laid out before you. Luke presents the scene of Jesus suffering in the garden and he provides some unique details that the other gospel writers did not give. And you have to keep in mind that Luke himself was a physician. In Luke chapter 22, verse 39, the Bible says, Coming out, that is, he, Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples he found them sleeping from sorrow then he said to them why do you sleep rise and pray lest you enter into temptation one of the details here in luke's account is that of a physician that he records that the other gospel writers do not And it's the sweat becoming as great drops of blood. Here we have Jesus portrayed as being under incredible stress and anxiety. He's under so much stress and anxiety, he becomes weak. And an angel from heaven has to come down to strengthen him in the moment. That is an incredible scene of agony and anguish. And being extremely distraught about the cup which is about to come his way of which he must drink. This is a depiction, this is a literal, this is the lady, she's an Italian lady who suffers from what's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis occurs in two forms. It occurs as a blood disorder. Some people have sweat, sweaty blood is what it's referred to because of physical uh, skin, uh, physical blood issues. But there is also hematidrosis that is invoked on rare occasions due to extreme stress and agony. In the the skin, you have sweat glands that are surrounded by small blood vessels. When hematidrosis occurs in an individual because of stress and anguish, what happens is the body goes into what we refer to oftentimes as fight-or-flight mode. And so when your body goes into this state of fight-or-flight mode, it's trying to survive, and it begins, the heart ceases to send blood to the outer extremities of the body. It's just trying to preserve itself. And when that occurs in hematidrosis, the person becomes more and more anxious, and thus the cardiovascular system continues to, to restrict the blood more and more, and a person becomes so stressed, so weak, that they end up collapsing. When they collapse, the blood begins to naturally flow back to the body as it is intended to do, 
And when it does, it causes the blood vessels to rupture. The ruptured blood in the blood vessels flow over into the sweat glands, and the person begins to sweat blood in conjunction with their normal sweat. What we're seeing happen in Luke's gospel is Jesus in an extreme state of agony and anguish. An angel from heaven has to come down and strengthen him because he is in a collapsed or an extremely weak state. When the angel comes and gives him some relief, he is not, his anguish is not taken away for he is still in anguish. Yet he begins to manifest it in different forms now as he begin to, begins to bleed great drops of blood. There are less than two dozen cases that we have recorded in history of people that have suffered hematidrosis. And over half of those cases are individuals that were on death row and were agonizing over what laid ahead of them in a form of execution. Jesus was in extreme, under extreme duress under this occasion. The death on the cross was a terrifying thing. It was a very heavy load that Jesus was going to have to bear up under. Yet he came to grips there in the garden and he set his face to go to the cross. In Luke chapter 9 verse 51, uh, toward the end of his second year, the beginning of his third year of ministry, the Bible notes there that Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. That means he made up his mind. He was going to go to Jerusalem where he would die. He would do the teaching that was necessary to enact or invoke all of the events that would transpire at Calvary. Yet here in the garden, in a very intimate and a private scene, we have him struggling with that. It reminds me of the picture of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. When Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, he was told by God to set his face like an iron pillar. Yet throughout the rest of Jeremiah, we see a man who is inwardly struggling with the difficulty of the task that God gave him. Jesus outwardly, as he combated the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, he was an iron pillar. He had set his face to do this. But inwardly, he was having struggles. And we get to see that intimate picture here in Luke as he struggles with the agony that awaited him on the cross. Yet after he rises off the ground from praying in anguish, he goes and finds his disciples who were asleep because of sorrow. He tells them to get up and to pray because they might enter into temptation. That's what he had been doing. And he goes forward to meet Judas and to set the whole plan of redemption in motion. Jesus was taken that night to the house of Annas, who was the former high priest, the father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. He was there placed on trial, and it was in the courtyard of Annas' house that Peter denied him three times. John, his beloved disciple, was there present also, but was standing in the background, in the shadows, if you will, simply watching the events as they transpired. All alone, Jesus stands accused falsely of things he had never done. Listening to people come forward and produce lie after lie after lie with the sole intent of having him put to death. And he endured, not saying anything. I can't really imagine that. Your natural reaction is to defend yourself, to, to speak the truth, to have your case heard. Yet Jesus sat there silently being falsely accused. Finally, when they could not find a false witness, 
who could lie well enough under oath to present a plausible cause for Jesus being put to death, Annas asked Jesus directly if he claims to be the Son of God. And Jesus admits that that is the case. He, is, he says it is as you say. He's taken over to Caiaphas' house where the second mock trial transpires. And after the, the trial has concluded, the soldiers of the high priest come and they take a blindfold and they place it over the eyes of Christ so that he cannot see. And they begin to turn and to strike him across the face, crying out, Luke 22, verse 63, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? That seems like a very mild thing in comparison to everything else Jesus went through. But that in of itself would be a difficult moment to endure all alone. Standing in darkness, receiving blow upon blow, not knowing from whence they come, not knowing when they will cease. And standing there and taking it as God with the full capability of ending it in the moment if he wanted to. Yet he endured falsely accused. They gathered together the Sanhedrin early in the morning and they pronounced the official verdict. And he was hauled away to Pilate for the Roman trial. It's interesting you have three trials amongst the Jews where they pronounce the verdict of not guilty. When he gets to Pilate, Pilate declares him innocent. He sends him to Herod. Herod pronounces him innocent. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate pronounces him innocent again. So here you have three guilty verdicts in a corrupt court. And three innocent verdicts in an equally corrupt court. And it shows the sham of the trial that was taking place, yet Jesus was still going to be sentenced to death. Luke chapter 23, verse 22. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. The word chastise here in this verse is an is interesting word term. It's often used in reference to parents' relationship to their children. Parents are to chastise their children. In other words, educate or train up, as we say, train up a child in the way he should go. What Pilate is literally saying here is, what evil has he done? If you think he's the threat, I will educate him on the Roman way. And I will show him that Rome is the one who has the power and when I'm done with him, he will know the lesson that you're hoping he will learn. Let me educate him. This places the scourging that Jesus would receive under a different a light than normal scourgings. And what I mean by that is when individuals were crucified, it was quite common that scourging took place before the crucifixion. But the scourging was quite abbreviated because they wanted to make sure the person made it to the cross to die on the cross. The reason that Pilate is scourging him on this occasion is to educate him to show the people that he is not a threat and so he is going to get the full weight of a Roman scourging rather than an abbreviated form prior to crucifixion. Here on the left we have the, the Roman uh, scourge that they use in the process. I had likely little balls of lead, possibly pieces of glass or bone at the end. This was quite a wicked instrument. Uh, the Jews, whenever they scourged someone, they could only give out 40 stripes, but the Romans had no such limit that they were assigned. It was up to the uh, 
whatever you want to call it, the the desire of the executioner who was performing the scourge. They could determine how long and how far that they could beat a person to keep them from dying, yet feeling the full weight of the moment. There was, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, there were gross misrepresentations in this scene. First of all, in that movie, they had Jesus laid down and beaten with rods for quite some time before the scourging ever took place. And then when the scourging took place, it lasted for an extremely long period of time. And at the final scene, you close with the back of Jesus being essentially uh, skinless, void of any type of skin, mangled, raw flesh. It's not the depiction of scourgings really in history uh, that we know about. This was an extreme situation. But what would occur more was that uh, the body would, be t- would turn black and blue all over because of severe bruising. There would be some lacerations. There would be some tears. There would definitely be bleeding, but not quite as Mel Gibson depicted it. Talk about some of the effects of the scourging. Number one, you had whelps and lacerations that would occur. Obviously, from this uh, pounding that took place, uh, I got ahead of myself. First of all, whenever they were going to administer a scourge, They would cause the person to stand. They were not allowed to lie down. They would stand. They would bend at the waist, and they would have their arms tied to a pillar. Now, over the course of a scourge, the person would oftentimes faint or grow weak. And so they would wake him back up, and they would cause him to stand with a bowed back to receive the scourge. As as the scourge happens, the, the lashes would generally wrap around the body. It would greatly affect the rib cage, and it would also wrap around and affect the chest as well because of the nature of the device being used. Not only did you have whelps and lacerations, you also had hemorrhagic uh, and lacerated muscles. Between your rib cage, you have what are called intercolostal muscles. You have back muscles, chest muscles. And in scourging, these muscles would begin to spasm. They would tear, and they would begin to fill with blood and fill the cavity of the body with blood because of the beating. You would have what was called splinting occur. This is where it's very difficult to breathe because of bruised ribs. A lot of times when they have to perform open heart surgery on a patient, the patient is bruised in the chest cavity, and they have a very difficult time breathing, and they're forced to breathe through one of those little breathing devices to exercise their lungs, and all the patients complain they hate doing it because it is a painful exercise. It becomes difficult to breathe. You think about being in a car wreck where you've had a seat belt across your chest and you become bruised across your chest, and it's extremely difficult to breathe. Maybe being hit with a baseball in the side to where it is difficult to even breathe. That's the type of uh, breathing problems that would be associated with the scourging. You have hemorrhagic lungs that would occur. This means that the lungs would become bruised because of the scourging. They too would begin to fill with blood and with different liquid. And even sometimes you would have what was called pneumothorax, which would occur, this was quite common, where the lung would simply collapse. Dr. Zugby recounts doing an autopsy of a young boy who was beaten with a belt and a lamp cord. And he had severe bruising. He had lacerations to his body that had occurred. He had a collapsed lungs. He had pneumothorax. He had hemorrhagic lungs. Uh, It was evident from when he had received this beating. I want you to listen to what Zugby declares after doing this examination. He said, Yet a beating with the flagrum in comparison to a belt and a lamp cord 
would be markedly more extensive. As bad as that situation was, it didn't really hold a candle to what was taking place in a Roman scourging. As we stated, there would be extreme weakness, many times the person fainting and having to be raised just to endure more. There would be bouts of vomiting, tremors, seizures, and faintings that would accompany it. You would have what's called pleural effusion taking place. This is the accumulation of, of liquid inside the lungs due to the bruising and the difficulty of breathing. You would have what's called hypovolemia that would begin to occur, which is severe loss of bodily fluids. When you have hypovolemia begin to happen, you have oftentimes what's called hypovolemic shock, which is where the body tries to cope with its excessive loss of fluids. The body enters a stage of shock known as hypovolemic shock in which the person is extremely weak, lightheaded, ashen-colored, and profusely sweating. All of this was occurring to Christ in the scourging. This is a very savage scene to say the least. Having been scourged to be educated in the Roman way, the soldiers then began to have fun with Jesus. This is a twisted sort of fun. Mark chapter 15, verse 17. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hell, king of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. You claim to be a king? Okay, we'll put a royal robe on you. We'll bow down and we'll give you the worship, the homage that you have so great that you have been desiring so much. And they twist this crown of thorns. A lot of times when we talk about the crown of thorns, we associate that mainly with um, humiliation. We think, yeah, there would be some pain that was involved with that. Certainly, I mean, you look at the size of these thorns, you think that would hurt to put that on your head. But this may have been the most painful episode in the whole suffering of Christ. To understand what's going on with the crown of thorns, you have to know a little bit about anatomy. This is a crude, rough course that we're giving here. You have located here on the front of your, your head, on the side of your head, right by your ear, what's called the trigeminal nerve. And that nerve branches out like a spider web, and it covers the entire front of your face and your forehead. And then on the back of your head, you have what is called the occipital nerve, which covers the back side. In other words, you have nerves running all through your face, and all over your head, front and back. This, it, uh, if you want to perform a weird experiment sometime, just take a pin and try to poke around on your face or on your skull anywhere and find a place where it does not hurt. It's impossible. There are nerves all over your scalp. This would be an incredibly painful moment. There's what's referred to as trigeminal neuralgia, which occurs when the nerves are affected in the face. Mild trigemin uh, trigeminal neuralgia. Uh, has the effect of pains traveling throughout the face, causing headaches, painful burning sensations, and even toothaches. These nerves are connected to your teeth. However, when you have major trigeminal neuralgia, that is when severe trauma occurs to this nerve, as was the case when the crown of thorns was placed upon Christ, you would have lightning bolt type of effects that would feel like electric shock that would go throughout your entire face. It would hurt to be touched on your face. It would hurt to move your face in any way, to chew, to even talk. Even the feeling of air brushing against your skin 
becomes quite painful. Dr. Robert Nugent, who is the professor and chairman of neurology at the University of West Virginia, he said this, he said, Trigeminal neuralgia is said to be the worst pain that man is heir to. It is a devastating pain that is just unbearable in its several forms. Painkillers, even things like morphine, have absolutely no effect on this. The only thing that they can do for a limited amount of success is to perform different types of surgery where they are killing nerve endings in the, the head and the face. This is extremely painful. Another problem with uh, this type of neuralgia is that the pain not only continues endlessly, but it also intensifies as it goes along. That's hard to imagine, hard to fathom. Most patients, whenever they have trigeminal neuralgia, they try to remain immobilized. Not moving, not breathing, not talking, not doing anything, just lying there as still as they possibly can. Yet Jesus, as he is suffering this, he's having to take up a cross. He is stumbling down the road as he goes. He has taken him, he is crucified, and he is left in the hot sun until the sky is darkened for a period of six hours. Pain that we cannot even imagine. As they placed this crown upon his head, they drove it in and began to beat him with rods to drive it in further, and they mocked him. The Bible says, Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah seeing the suffering servant, he said, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. What an incredible statement. of Jesus' mindset, his depiction, as he is going through these moments leading up to the cross. The pitiable Christ, beaten, exhausted, and humiliated, is taken and paraded before Pilate. John chapter 19, verse 4. Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Does this look like God to you? This pitiful, beaten man who has been educated in the Roman way. Does this look like God? Behold the pitiful man. That's not the picture that we have of God most times either. Yet this was God. Suffering these things as a man for mankind. As some of the songs we said this morning, he paid the debt that we could not pay. This was supposed to be us standing there, yet it was Christ standing in our place. Pilate had hoped that this beating, this scourging would have the effect that people would see him in this humiliated, beaten state, and they would have pity on him. Yet these people were so worked up, they were so angry, they were so mad at God, that they have not a shred of mercy in their body. And they begin to cry out, according to verse 6, Crucify him, crucify him. This isn't good enough. We need more. He must die, and not just die any type of death. He must die the death of crucifixion. John chapter 19, verse 8. 
Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. Here is a hardened Roman who has, who has commanded his army to beat this individual. He brings him out. He's having pity on the man. But the people are so worked up, they want crucifixion. And Pilate, the Roman soldier, becomes afraid of the crowd. Because you have a rabid animal type of people in front of you. And it's something to be quite scared of. And he went again to the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Remember, you don't want to talk when you're in this state. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Are you not going to answer me and listen up? I could churn you loose if I wanted to. Notice Jesus' words that he spoke in pain. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered to me, me to you has the greater sin. Two things about his statement. First of all, Pilate was not guiltless in what he did. The Jews were more guilty, but that does not mean Pilate was innocent. But second of all, this couldn't happen unless God above in heaven had determined that this had to happen. And for that reason, I stand before you this day. And for that reason, I am deciding to go through and suffer the things that I am suffering. John chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Could you imagine being in Pilate's situation? thinking you have the power over this man and this man is not phased by you one bit and declares the reason he is there suffering is because he is in fact God and God has willed this to be so. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that say, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. About the sixth hour he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Here begins the trek to Calvary. In verse 17, the Bible declares, and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. I think this is probably a misunderstood scene in the Gospels. In Mel Gibson's movie, again, he depicts Jesus carrying this massive cross and struggling to move down the pavement. Uh, Zugby, I think, has a legitimate point. He argues there is no possible way that a man who has gone through all that Jesus has gone through up to this point could carry the size of cross that Gibson has depicted. The fact is, most of the crosses that were used in Roman execution of crucifixion were not the type of crosses that we see today. There's a church down the street here on the left that has three crosses out in front of it, and they're the traditional uh, cross that you're used to seeing, that you see on people's necklaces, and you have what we call the Roman cross. This is not the typical cross that they used to crucify people. Typically what they would do is they would have uh, crosses that were already staked in the ground, if you will. They were just poles there. And the, the person who was going to be crucified had to carry the cross beam. 
And the crossbeam would be set on top of the cross like that. This was the type of cross that Jesus likely died on. He had to carry, rather than the entire cross, the crossbeam, which itself would have weighed about 50 to 70 pounds. This was a difficult load for a man to carry that had gone through what Jesus had already been doing. And so Jesus stumbles and is not able to carry this along the way. So they compel a man by the name of Simon to bear the cross. Here's a depiction in a uh, graphic. Uh, This is called a sedae, and this was kind of like a little seat, but was not added to a later time. It is highly doubtful that this uh, piece was on the cross that Jesus died on, though the rest of it is a proper depiction, including the, the little sign at the top that declared who Jesus was, that he was dying because he claimed to be king of the Jews. When I read that scene of Simon being compelled to carry the cross, you think for a moment, the first time you read that, you think, well, that was, you know, obviously they see Jesus struggling, and they have a little bit of compassion on him, And because he's going to die, they compel somebody to go ahead and bear the cross for him. This is not a scene of compassion whatsoever. This is simply a man falling under his cross and incapable physically of getting back up and walking any further with that load. And the Roman thought is, somebody else is going to have to carry this or this man will never get there and we want him to get there so that we can crucify him. And so they compel Simon To carry the cross of Christ. With every step Jesus took merely walking. Let alone while he was bearing the burden of the beam. Intense pain over his entire body. Marching in the noonday heat up toward Calvary. What likely happened when they got there was as follows. The cross being carried by Simon was later thrown on the ground. Jesus was thrown down on the ground and two soldiers, each grabbing an arm, and another soldier laying across his waist, held him in place while they stretched out his arms and they nailed him to the cross. Amidst possible screams of pain, a fourth soldier took two to five inches of iron spikes and drove them through the palm of each hand. Many of the depictions that you see in the world today of the crucifixion of Christ have Jesus hanging on the cross with his wrists and his feet tied to the cross. And that is not what happened. Jesus was staked to this cross. Later on, after Jesus had resurrected, Thomas said, I will not believe unless I put my fingers in the holes of his hand and in his side. We'll talk more about why he wanted to touch the side in a moment, but right now we're talking about the hands This was evidence that he had been crucified with nails. Colossians chapter 2, 14, chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, having nailed it to the cross, he's speaking there of the old law. The old law reached its conclusion whenever they nailed Jesus, the embodiment of the old law, to the cross. He brought it to a conclusion, paying the sacrifice for our sins. There's two points of interest I've always had in this scene and questions I've had. Maybe you've had these too. Number one, I've wondered um, how the weight of the body could be supported on the cross if the nails were driven through the palms. And number two, I've also wondered how a nail could be driven through the palm without breaking any bones. Pierre Barbet, who I mentioned earlier in our introduction, he apparently had these same difficulties. 
After performing some experimentation, he decided, he concluded, that the spike went through the base of the palm or right above the wrist. And this is where Jesus was crucified. Because he said that the weight of the body could not be supported by the hand. I suppose the reason I've always wondered how the hand could support the weight was because I've always been told the hand couldn't support the weight. But it seems to be that Jesus' hands were pierced, not his wrist. Now, Pierre Barbet was just arguing, no, it was likely the upper wrist or the lower part of the palm that was actually crucified. Now, that became widely accepted and is the most commonly accepted theory because, again, Barbet had a tremendous impact on the world. But as Paul Harvey would say, there's a rest of the story that's out there waiting to be heard, and I want to share that with you briefly this morning. What they don't tell you about Barbet, they say he performed some experiment and the hand could not hold up on the weight. What they do not tell you is how the experimentation was performed. What Barbet did was he took an arm from a cadaver, not the entire cadaver. He drove a nail uh, through the upper part of the palm. He hung an 88-pound weight off of that cadaver arm, and he tugged on it until the nail ripped through the hand. And he determined that since it was only 88 pounds, if you triple that weight essentially and you had the weight of Jesus, the body of Christ would not be able to be supported by a palm that was nailed to the cross. There are several glaring problems with his mode of experimentation. First of all, Jesus was not hanging off the cross by one hand directly down from it. He was crucified. He had his arms at a 60 to 70 degree angle. And he also had his feet nailed to the cross as well, which would have aided in supporting his weight. I'll give you a diagram here. Uh, this is where Barbet concluded that the nail had to have gone through. This is about the length of a Roman a spike, which is about uh, five, uh, four and a half inches long. Nine centimeters in diameter at top, narrowing down to five in the base, square in nature. Pierre Barbet concluded that it was either here in what's called this stopped space or here at the base of the palm that Jesus was likely crucified. However, it's more likely that this spot here with the opening there is the place where the palm was pierced. Now, something you can do on yourself, if you will take your thumb and you will press upon it with your index finger, there is a line that forms across your palm. And at the base of that line, in the midst of your palm, you can pierce yourself. Uh, I would not suggest this. I'm just saying this is an anatomically possible. You can be pierced through the palm, and it will come out the back of your hand without breaking any bones. There's about eight bones that are located at the base of your palm, but there is this space to the side, and there is plenty of cartilage and bone structure there to support the weight, regardless of whether you had both hands nailed or the feet nailed either. What happens whenever you pierce the palm in this manner, if you will take your wrist and you form a fist and then you bend your wrist, you have this rope-like tendon that appears in your arm. Okay? Behind that tendon is what's called the median nerve. The median nerve goes up into your hand and spider webs out. And it, it causes great pain if that nerve is pierced. Now, during the Civil War, there were a number of individuals who had the medium nerve pierced in their hands. It, first of all, it uh, disables the use of your hand. You cannot use your hand any longer. Narcotics have no effect on alleviating the pain. Many people became addicted to opiates at that time, trying to knock off the edge, and it did not work. 
The only form that they could uh, come up with at that time for alleviating the pain was amputation. But many times before they got to the place where they could perform an amputation, the individual committed suicide. This is an extremely painful uh, type of injury. And it would have been affected, the median nerve would likely have been affected when Christ was crucified to the cross. The way that his feet were nailed to the cross is also probably different. Most of the time when you see depictions, you have one foot resting on top of the other. It's extremely difficult to nail feet in that position. What is more likely to occur is that the feet were either placed side by side and the, the bottoms of the feet resting against the cross, or they were crucified to the side of the cross. Uh, it's interesting, this little artifact here, this was a bone that they found in France, and this is the only skeletal evidence of crucifixion that we have today. What would happen is most times after they crucified an individual, they would pull the nails out so they could use the nails for other things, for other crucifixions, for instance. And so there's very, uh, there's, this is it. <laughs> there's very little evidence, physical evidence of crucifixion when you're talking about uh, bodies being found. But here, obviously, the nail was pierced through the heel bone of the individual, and when they tried to remove it, they could not get it out, and so they buried him that way, and we have found the evidence. Now, it's, it's highly unlikely, I doubt, that Jesus was pier uh, crucified in that manner on the side of the cross because not a bone of his body was broken, the scriptures say. It was likely that his feet were placed on the front. Whenever they crucified an individual, his legs would be at a bent and an angled position so that his feet could be flush with the face of the cross and it would bear the weight. Jesus is therefore nailed to the cross beam. A soldier picks up either end of the beam. Another soldier grabs him around the waist and hoists him into the air. And the two individuals on the side walk up a pair of steps so that they can place the top of that crown on its beam and rest there. And there Jesus will hang until he dies. Think about Jesus hanging there on the cross. The Bible says that he thirsts. When you're talking about hypovolemic shock, loss of bodily fluids, one of the things that's always reported in patients is that they become extremely thirsty. And to say that Jesus was thirsty is likely a gross, gross understatement. It would have been thirst more likened to someone who was dying of dehydration, dying because they had not had a drink. Yet Jesus in this state refused a wine type of substance that was given to, as a drink and also to try to help with the pain at that time. He refused it. Instead, he cries out three statements prior to his death. He says, first of all, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first verse of the 22nd Psalm that also speaks about his hands and his feet being pierced. He states this to his Jewish audience as a way of reminder that this has always been in the plan of God. I am dying as it was portrayed that I would die. This is also a final sermon because at the end of the song there is victory and triumph because God has not forsaken him. He then says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And finally... He musters enough power and strength to claim it is finished. 
the task that God had laid on his shoulders has now been fulfilled. And he hung his head and he died. The Bible says in Mark chapter 15 verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. This passage has given a lot of people puzzle through the years. Why is Pilate shocked that he died so quickly? How is it that Jesus died a quicker death than normal? talk about that in a moment, but before we do so, I want to talk about what was the cause of Jesus' death. What I've heard all my life, what I myself have taught, is that the main cause of death and crucifixion is asphyxiation, that is suffocation. The idea presented by Barbe, upon evidence that was produced by men by the name of Leblec and Heineck, was that an individual who is crucified on the cross has their hands above their shoulders and they have difficulty breathing and so they have to raise themselves to get a breath and after time they are unable to raise themselves and breathe and so they suffocate. The reason supposedly that they broke the legs of individuals was so that they could no longer raise themselves but would suffocate there on the cross. That's a false theory. The evidence that this was based upon was an observation that Lebec made. He was in a German prisoner of war camp in World War I. And he saw an individual who was hung by his hands. His hands were directly above his head. He was hung by his hands and he suffocated because he could not breathe in that position. That is a very different position than being crucified. Okay, That's the first thing. Dr. Zugby performed experiments with over 100 individuals who volunteered to be strapped onto a cross. And they did this to determine what some of the effects would be uh, physical suffering on the cross. The one effect that was absent, as in completely absent, as in there was no evidence for whatsoever, was difficulty breathing. Number two, you cannot move when you are affixed to the cross. You are in a stuck position. And so this idea of raising and lowering oneself is a false theory. That's all it was to begin with. It was a theory, and it was false. You cannot move while you're on the cross. The individuals were on the, on the cross from anywhere from 10 minutes to over an hour and a half to two hours, depending on how each one could bear up under the pain associated with it. And again, this is without spikes. They all uh, noted that there was severe cramping that took place after a matter of mere minutes. They were in extreme agony that would begin to go over their body. They had a hard time focusing, but breathing was not their problem. So asphyxiation is not the cause of death. So the question comes up, well, why would they break the legs of the victim then? That doesn't make sense. Well, the reason you break legs on a victim is because individuals who have been scourged and are also being dehydrated on a cross are likely hypovolemic. They don't have fluids in their body. Their, uh, their body is under stress from that. And what happens is when you break a femur bone, which is where they would break the leg, you lose two pints of blood instantly. And so from a person who is suffering from blood loss and fluid loss, you take four pints of blood instantly out of their system, you're going to have a quicker expiration that occurs. Oftentimes, the Romans would take a person that was living off of the cross and then break their legs on the ground 
to speed up the death process. The second theory that was presented was presented by Dr. William Stroud in about 1874. He claimed that Jesus died of a broken heart, or a ruptured heart, though he called it a broken heart. It's based off of John chapter 19, verse 34, where the Bible says, Well, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Uh, Dr. Stroud theorized that what happened was Jesus' heart ruptured, and the only way you can have both blood and water flowing out of the cavity of a body is if the heart ruptures. Dr. Zugby, who is a recognized uh, cardiologist, world-renowned cardiologist, he has extensive research, extensive documentation. You cannot suffer a ruptured heart unless there has been a heart attack or a cardiovascular onset at least two days prior. And so since there is no evidence in Scripture that Jesus suffered a heart attack at least two days prior to being placed on the cross, the theory of a ruptured heart is medically impossible. Those are the words of Dr. Zugby. So the question then becomes, why was Jesus pierced in the side and how did blood and water protrude from his side? I'm trying to remember if I have a slide for this one. Basic anatomy in the body, you have what is called the pleural sac, which is uh, a sac-like organ that covers the lungs, holds the lungs within your body. And then you have what's called the pericardial sac, which contains the heart. Now, when Jesus was beaten with the scourge, his lungs, as we stated, likely could have collapsed. They would have been severely bruised. He would have had difficult breathing. And he would have had fluid beginning to build up in his, uh, in his pleural sac. At the same time, when an individual dies, there is uh, blood that is released into the chest cavity if the heart fails, which we'll talk more about that in a moment. And so what happens likely when the spear pierces his side is both the pleural and the pericardial sac were pierced. And at the moment they were pierced, both blood and bodily fluid that was surrounding the lungs poured out. Now this would not have been a continuous flowing because once the spear is removed, it would have created kind of a vacuum that caused the fluids to suck back up into the body. But at the initial piercing, there would have been a flow of both water and blood. Dr. Zugby, as a forensic evaluator, and as the medical examiner of New York, he put it this way. He said, if I were asked to give a medical evaluation of the cause of death in Christ, I would state it this way. The cause of death, cardiac and respiratory arrest due to hypervolemic and traumatic shock due to crucifixion. That's a big phrase. What's that mean? It means the amount of trauma that Jesus endured along with the severe loss of fluids to the body caused Christ to go into a state of traumatic shock, which caused his lungs and his heart to cease functioning. When you compound the scene of hematidrosis in the garden, with the beating in the court, with the scourging by the Romans, with the trigeminal neuralgia from the thorns, the carrying of the cross to Calvary, the piercing of the hands and feet, the hanging on the cross for six hours, 
There's not a big mystery in how it was that Christ died. Dr. Zugby stated it this way. He said, anyone with a background in forensic pathology or emergency medicine would cringe and wonder how he lasted as long as he did and certainly would not be in the least surprised that he had died relatively quickly. Going back to Thomas, Thomas wants to see the nails in his hands and the hole in his side where he was pierced. Why? The nails in the hands indicate that he was crucified and the spear hole indicates he died. The reason they pierced Jesus was to see, is this man dead? You're not going to be pierced without flinching, without moving. You're not going to have your lung sack and your heart sack pierced and be able to live through it. Regardless of the other things that occurred. The theories that have been numerous that Jesus simply fainted and was taken down from the cross and laid in the grave and somehow he got back up and somehow he pushed a stone away that several women could not move and that he escaped and he lived in secrecy and, and ended up marrying uh, Mary Magdalene and they had children. That is the biggest bunch of foolishness that atheistic minds who do not want to believe in Jesus and who do, who do not want to accept the death that he died, though they cannot deny that he lived and that he did die, that's what the type of things that they come up with. When I think about the scene that we've looked at this morning, the scenes of Jesus dying, I think about the words of John, John chapter 1, verse 29, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You talk about sacrifice and suffering and love and substitution, there is no greater scene in the history of the world than Christ on the cross. I want to say just a few things, and then we're going to go, read, go ahead and read part of Isaiah chapter 53. But when you see Jesus on the cross and you see him dying, the death that was due you. And you recognize that there's a God out there who loves you enough to allow that to happen to us. And not just to allow it, but to plan for the substitution to take place. It puts you in your place. There is nothing we could do ever in our lifetime to make up for what Christ did for us. There is nothing we could possibly come up with, devise a way to appease the wrath of God because Christ on the cross was the only way. We talk about our life, we talk about our sins and we think sometimes, well, you know, it wasn't a big sin, it was just a little sin. But even your little sins are what caused Christ to die on the cross. Because no matter how great or small, there is nothing you can do to have your sin removed. God had to come in the flesh and die. The sinless sacrifice. The one person who was undeserving of death. Who had never angered the Father. Who had never disobeyed the Father. Rejected Him or caused Him grief or shame. The heinousness and the hideous picture of the cross is because of my sin. 
And were I the only one, as the song says, in need of royal blood to set me free, Jesus would have died so that I might live. We talk about the church. We're talking about the institution Christ established through his shed blood. You want to have a relationship to God? You cannot do that as an individual separate and apart from Christ and from his body. How valuable is the church to Christ? Valuable enough that he would go through Calvary and die for it. As the church is not about what we want. It's not about what I want or what you want or the role I want or the role that I don't like that God gave me. It's about recognizing the Son on the cross and what he did so that worthless I can stand before God one day. The reason we come together and we worship the way we do is because Christ died on the cross and we worship for his glory and his honor as he requested. He has the right to ask anything out of us, to demand anything. Because of what he did, there is no price we could pay to make up for what he has done. And so therefore we look to Christ and we look to the cross and we don't view it as our burden, as our cross that we're walking down the road with, unable to bear. We look at it as a very light load in comparison to Christ. And whatever he asks, we do it because he's God. And because he died for me, he died for you, he died for the church. There is nothing in the history of the world more precious and more important than the death of Christ on the cross. The entire Old Testament was leading up to, it was anticipating, it was preparing for this moment in time. And everything since then has looked back toward it. Even people who deny Christ count the years of this universe by his death. (laughs) If you have your Bible, open up to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and we'll begin in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What an understatement. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. As he stands there in Pilate's hall, all alone. As he stands in the court of Caiaphas, forsaken by all. Faces hidden from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. In other words, men were looking at the cross and they were thinking, He deserves this. God is doing this to him. It's true, God was allowing this to happen. God had arranged for this scene. But it was because of mankind and his sin, not because Jesus was deserving 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The song we sang this morning, Brother Noah led the crown. A shroud displaying all my sins is bright as scarlet. Think about that song. That song has been on my mind the last several weeks. The shroud was the, the piece of fabric that they would wrap the dead body in. And all the suffering, all the places where Jesus was wounded, bled through on that shroud. And when you see a shroud of the man, you see the pain and agony that he went through. The blood on the shroud that wrapped Jesus represented my sin and my shame. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Doesn't that describe us as individuals in the world? You know why we're called sheep most oftenly in Scripture? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. He became like us. He became our substitute. In order to identify with him, we have to identify with the Lamb of God. Yet we wander around doing whatever we want in life, not focusing on the Lamb. Yet the Lamb came and died for the sheep. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus became the substitute and paid the price no man could pay for all man. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. Listen to that again. For the transgression of my people... He was stricken. It's the concept of the church. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus would look back on this scene. And he would see the labor and toil that his soul went through in the garden. And he would say it was worth it. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. You can't be justified standing in a just condition before God without being forgiven. They're interchangeable. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When Jesus died, it was as if he was the greatest sinner there ever was. No, he wasn't. He was not the greatest sinner. He was treated as if he were, but he was the sinless son of God paying the substitute for my sin. 
Yet he died a shameful, agonizing death. Died as a lost soldier in battle. But he is rewarded with a place among the great, the strong, the living. And he sits at God's right hand. Because in the Calvary, he conquered sin and the grave. Hallelujah, praise be to God. That the sun rose on the third day in triumphant victory, handing Satan the defeat that no one else could so that we might survive the battle of this life, be redeemed and go home to live with God in heaven forever. Now, if you're here this morning and you've not obeyed the gospel, shame on you is all I can say. And I don't say that in a downward, with a downward tilt of my nose. Because of what God has done, shame on anybody in the world who doesn't recognize him as Lord and Savior and coming to him, asking him to take away their sin by being baptized in water so that your sins might be washed away, raised to walk a new man in Christ, having been added to his church that he died to purchase. Maybe you've done that, but you haven't been living as you should. Maybe you're that sheep that's wandered away. Recognize what the Lamb did on behalf of yourself so that you could be part of the people of God and come back before it's too late. There's someone here this morning. Well, in the case, come as we stand and sing. All the praise is yours alone. You're worthy, worthy of all. Our God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty to save. Our God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty always. Our God is ever almighty. He's ever almighty.